Oh, God love you. So, are you are you <laughs> recording? Yeah, are you recording? I am recording. Do you not find it interesting that we only record these things in moments of, like, international tragedy? Yeah, well, I mean, there's a lot more to go around in the last four years than uh, previous... This is... I, I found myself really embodying, you know, soon to be... I mean, next week I'll be 41, and really embodying, like, my 41-year-old self being like, do you guys remember the 90s? The 90s <laughs> were fucking awesome. Nothing happened. Everyone was angry. Billy Corgan was just <laughs> enraged, you know? Right. Like... Yeah, and the, and the biggest crisis was that the president got a blowjob. Everything was fine, but something was wrong. And now... <laughs> You know, which, which everything is wrong, but you have to keep reminding yourself, everything's fine. Everything's fine. Yeah. <laughs> you know? It's gonna be fine. That's what we keep saying. I'm John Totten, and this is Between Us. You okay? There's got to be a vaccine. Pamela, we talked about this. There is no vaccine. Something fishy's going on, if you ask me. You mean to tell me the President of the United States doesn't have a vaccine? Yeah, right. When the weather is nice, sometimes, I sit on my back porch and watch the planes in the distance as they descend towards SeaTac International Airport. On most evenings, there is a steady stream you see a new plane about every five minutes. Lately, they seem to have slowed to a couple per hour. And still, that seems as though it's too much activity for the current events. On January 15, 2020, Seattle became ground zero for the American branch of the COVID-19 outbreak, aka the coronavirus. In late February, the coronavirus had made its way into local nursing homes and caused its first American deaths. A week later, schools across Washington state were being closed for what would eventually be a year-ending closure. As the virus was discovered at offices like Amazon and Facebook, corporate entities started to mandate working from home as an official policy. In mid-March, my wife and I decided to cancel our vacation to see my parents in Tennessee, fearing we might bring the covert disease with us. And soon after, I went to buy an office chair in preparation for a new reality in which my work would be done completely from home. We were lucky. We were lucky to be in Washington State, where we got an early warning. As of now, there are still parts of the United States that are not addressing the danger. Soon after our governor ordered citizens to stay home unless their jobs were deemed essential, New York City overtook Seattle as the American epicenter. In metropolitan areas across the country, from New York to New Orleans to Chicago to L.A., hospitals are currently preparing for a week of historic overuse and resource shortage, a reality that many Americans still don't believe to be possible, and which more severely affected patients are sent home to die at triage in order to reserve medical equipment for those more likely to be saved. In the worst cases, many of the medical community have called it apocalyptic. My family and I, so far, are lucky. Many of my clients are technologically minded and well-employed. As they work from home, they can easily take an hour out of their day to attend video chat therapy. Not everyone has adjusted to it. 
Some have left, but the work continues. And my wife is a nurse who is guaranteed to have employment through this crisis. Not everyone I know can say the same. Many of our friends and family are service industry workers or retail workers. Their jobs depend on gatherings that are currently banned. And it feels very guilty to say that sometimes I feel silver linings. As I work on this episode, I'm sitting on that back porch, watching the trickle of planes. I'm safe and healthy, knock on wood. I'm remembering what is important in life, and I'm looking at a baby monitor, watching my 11-month-old daughter sleep peacefully in my former recording studio, now a nursery. Shortly before our last season ended, my wife gave birth to our first child. That's why the fourth season hasn't come out as quickly as you might have liked. I've been a bit busy. Today I spent two hours following her as she crawled around the house and tried to eat various things from the floor. Crumbs, leaves, dog food. She's extremely silly and independent and musical and opinionated and vocal about it. It's an internal conflict to like my life so much at this time. And yet part of why I'm grateful is that this disease does not affect her like it will or might affect us. She is not particularly vulnerable to it, and she has no idea what is going on. That lack of understanding is blissful to her, but the uncertainty of this time is nightmarish to many of us. So Mason and I decided to talk about it. This is much earlier than we planned on continuing the show, so unfortunately I don't have the next episode ready for you in two weeks, or even two months. We are working on the rest of the season, but we decided the circumstances called for a one-off. So this weekend I called Mason, who lives in Cardiff, Wales, and is experiencing this crisis through the lens of British culture. Yeah, so um, it's bizarre. I guess maybe we should talk about therapy. Oh God, must we? (laughs) (laughs) Well, you, uh, uh, you uh, from 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 our conversations, we've both found ourselves at slightly different places. So, who should go first? Yeah, I mean, I can just talk a little bit about my experience, which is first of all my own kind of anxiety for about how this is going to work. I have only ever used technology and therapy as like a substitute when someone is traveling for work, or yeah, um, you know, here and there. There was one day last year where Seattle actually had some snow, I I did work from home and I, my sense was that people really didn't like it. And so I was a little bit freaked out when I realized that this was going to have to be an um, indefinite change. And for the most part, people have not liked it, but have gone along with it. I think maybe because in Seattle, there's a sense of this might be just how life is for a while yeah. and might as well go ahead and adjust uh instead of fighting it kicking and screaming so you know it's been two or three weeks of doing therapy at home uh, either with video chat or some people prefer just to talk on the phone so far it's been an adjustment for sure uh talking is different cadences are different i am a very bantery kind of therapist, which sometimes means interrupting to ask a question and it doesn't work as well when the, the connection is latent. It's been an adjustment, but therapy is continue continuing. 
what what platform have you been using? <laughs> it's kind of that's something that hasn't been very streamlined. I have uh, I've gotten on the Zoom train. I've been using Google Hangouts. Uh, some people prefer FaceTime, and it, it's kind of a matter of like me having to go back and uh, check my like email records to see before each session. So the like little break before between each session has gotten a little bit more hectic. Uh, also, considering that I'm at home, I have a 10 month old daughter who is at home as well. So like we're all kind of in the house, and so it's nice but also strange to like go see her in between sessions. Sure. But yeah, it's mostly video chat. I suppose I've done a bit more of that over the years. I don't know why. I I, I think just in being flexible because. You know, people's definitions. There is a there are different cultural expectations of what therapy is, and I think over here it's it's a bit more pliable. It's not so fixed to face to face. So I've done you know quite a bit of not only video but also phone um, mm. therapy, which I prefer. I have to say, I find I find video um, sessions quite distracting because I'm constantly mm-hmm. looking at myself. I'm, yeah, well, I, I hate that. You know, I'm constantly seeing myself, which in some ways, as an instructive tool, you can sort of assess like, oh, am I fucking touching my face like an asshole constantly? Or, you know, <laughs> you, <laughs> it's like, yes, I am. Congratulations. It's like, oh, am I, fid- <laughs> am, I, am I fidgeting nonstop? Uh, do I ever stop moving? Oh, yep, check. Uh, good job. Where I've, I find myself on the phone, I, I, I find the immediacy of it. And also... You know, I'm sure this is the same everywhere in the world. You know, everyone's getting through this crisis at home. Most of us, you know, are balancing whether you're working, whether you're a student who's trying to learn something, whether you're, you know, like my five-year-old trying to either, you know, between reading games or the, you know, watching a show to amuse herself. Everyone's online. Mm-hmm. There's only so much bandwidth. So I, there's something about, I find the phone a bit more streamlined because you're constantly finding that battle of the picture freezes or Zoom tells you, you know, mm-hmm. your bandwidth is, is crap. And there's there's something about the latency of it. If psychotherapy is, is more art than science, all of a sudden there's this strange art of this technological lag which just interrupts that flow i don't know in in some ways it's it's something i'm used to in other ways i've i find it an impediment but it's also sort of therapy in wartime in the last few years there has been a whole culture arise around remote therapy there are many younger therapists who only practice this way it allows them to meet without an office to travel to live the way much of the so-called gig economy lives. And there have also appeared the app-based counseling services, where users pay membership fees and a remote therapist on their app is accessible to them at certain times. I don't have a lot of judgment for these methods of finding help. There are people in small towns who have difficulties finding someone who is a good fit. There are people who can't afford the typical fees who need these services. And yeah, after being forced to practice remotely for the last month, I kind of like the idea of being able to take my family to a rural area on vacation and still maintain the connection with my clients. I've never been good at taking time off, and that kind of lifestyle seems enticing to me sometimes. 
But at the end of the day, I realize I am still grieving the loss of a hyper-responsive environment in which to do my work. The best way I can think of to explain that is the analogy of my first and initial trade, playing bass. I've been a bass player since I was about 10. I studied jazz in my undergraduate career and moved to Seattle when I was 22 in order to play music. And the double bass and the electric bass are still passions of mine. If you're a musician, you might get this analogy, but when you play an electric instrument with a really responsive amplifier, you are able to react quickly and use the feedback to your advantage to emphasize certain notes and intricacies. When the room fills with the sound of your amp, you have to work less to make it sound good. You can breathe a bit more and let the instrument do its own work. The slightest move of a pinky might create a really beautiful effect. That to me is how counseling someone in the same room face-to-face is, hyper-responsive. So far, for me, counseling online has been like playing an electric instrument with no amp. The sound comes out, and maybe it sounds pretty, and your bandmate can hear it and respond to it, but it requires more muscle, and the vibrations aren't as big. I'm just learning how to play it that way, but I miss the amplifier of the treatment room. And also, we're, we're in two slightly different places with how our practices fit into our finances. Like for me, between my PhD stipend and my teaching, I try and keep about six to ten hours a week, but it's not something I have to do financially. It's something I do because I love to do it. Right. Um, right. What's that been like for you? Because, I mean, you teach, but this is primarily your gig financially at the moment. Yeah, and my wife, she reduced her hours uh, after our, after her maternity leave. So, you know, the financial burden in our family is more percentage-wise on me than it was before. Yeah. There's a little bit more of a, like a, a must there. Like it, it, the therapy must continue. Sure. You know, also, I, you know, I don't know what I would do with myself if it wasn't. So there's that as well. But certainly uh, a higher degree of economically economic anxiety, you know, there is the fact that she's a nurse. So if she needed to work more, um, there's always the opportunity. So there's plenty of backup plans for us. You know, one thing that I encounter is my clients being concerned about me during this is around the business and around you know, my mental health, which is, um, it's interesting, you know, this is similar to the election. This is one of those times where we are in it with our clients, unlike other things, you know, when a client comes to me and they are anxious about their work situation, well, that's something I can certainly empathize with, but it's not something I'm experiencing at the moment. Whereas this is something I'm experiencing at the moment with my clients. Yeah. Which is an an insane phenomenon in the history of psychotherapy, which, you know, whether you're coming from a psychoanalytic, psychodynamic background, a humanistic background, an existential background, I mean, it, the entire practice is predicated on the idea that we, as therapists, are in a, I mean, I, I don't know how you'd put it, in a better place, in a different place. I mean, what's what's Roger's terminology for it? That the that the the counselor is in a better psychic position than the client. Yeah. You know that, and this is utterly sort of leveled. You know, talk about like 
Talk about flattening the curve. Well, yeah, I mean, I've always preferred that leveling, but the I think, you know, what's ironic is that the I don't feel like on the surface level the client prefers that leveling as much as I do. Yeah, and, and and I think this is something that you and I share in our approach to it. Like I, I do as much as I can to be the same human being I am outside the room in the room. I try and bring mm-hmm. expertise, and but at the same time, I try and be as much myself as is humanly possible. And yeah. you know, in in some ways, it's amazing because it it sort of it brings. It brings the relationship, if it's been formed, if it's been cemented, if both sides are working to find each other, oh, my God, what an incredible moment, like of universality. Like we're all facing this Mm -hmm. insane threat. Now, we can debate how big that threat is and Mm -hmm. the factors which may raise or lower it, but how incredible that we, you know, we're sort of in this together. Mm -hmm. But I, I wonder from a client's perspective, if are they wanting to come and commiserate? Are they... I suppose it's a fine line of, of of sharing an experience, but also at what point do we stop embodying a place of security, you know? Yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think it's a conflict. I think a lot of my clients want that. First of all, they want my office. They want the f- geographic, physical containment yeah. that my office provides. They don't like, you know meeting with me from their cars or from, you know, from sitting in their beds while their spouses are doing their jobs in the other room, you know? Yeah. yeah. Um, and, th- and they want the psychological containment as well, which I think that word was uh, attractive to me at a certain point in my career. And I've become more skeptical of it as, uh, as I've aged. Like, I don't, I don't really know what, what it means and like what it, whether it's really part of what we're supposed to do other than the actual, you know, I do think having an office is an, is a important part of it. And, and, and all, all of a sudden, all of a sudden to, to sort of have access to their homes, their stuff. Yeah. It's, it, you know, it's, it's, it's oddly less vulnerable and that we're not, I couldn't reach across the coffee table and slap or hug my clients, but it's also more intimate and that they're seeing the art on my walls, not the art that I decorated my office with, but the art that my wife decorated our, you know, guest room slash office with. And yeah, sure. I'm seeing, I, you know, I'm seeing their bedrooms and, you know, they're hearing my child cry from the other room. It's, yeah. it's incredibly, the boundaries have totally shifted. Oh, they've been, they've been utterly obliterated. And that's what I'm saying. What, what an incredible moment for the practice and that we've, in some ways, we've had this like hyper confrontation or hyper meeting of the other, yeah. and isn't that what the whole fucking enterprise is about? Is to reach out and to establish a human connection with someone else. Yeah, you know, even even down to not only them us seeing their things, their personal space. You know, I'm conscious of you know the best light in our house is in our kitchen, and I'm conscious of like mm-hmm. you know my my daughter like made a crab out of a plate the other day and I was conscious like that was in the background. I was like, should I fucking move it? Or like there's plates on the shelf. Like, should I, I don't know, you know, in, in, in some ways, isn't that, I don't know, magnificent that we are human beings and they get to see that. Like all the Mm -hmm. artifices sort of stripped away, even down to like, I don't know about you. I always, 
something I've been conscious of as this the lockdown phase of this has gone on, and we are at present sort of two and a half weeks into it in Britain. I've conscious of every day, like not getting the the sweatpants on, like dressing like <laughs> a human being every day. Yeah, you know. But I'm but I've noticed that my clients are, you know, by and large, we're sort of in PJ world, you know, sort of the mm-hmm. artifice of how even people are presenting themselves because a, a well-worn phenomenon is that, you know, people, I don't know, all, all the presentation, the presentation of your office, of mine, of, mm-hmm. you know, it, you've got a, you've got that, you've got like a Dylan poster in yours, don't you? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I do. Yeah. Yeah. Jack, Jack has a very nice office. It's beautiful. It's incredible. Um, <laughs> I, <laughs> he's got the best office. You know, mine, I have, you know, yours, <laughs> your, <laughs> I've got your standard, you know, Rothko print. You know, all of that artifice of the things that we chose, we curated, you know, and mm-hmm. they, not only do we curate, but they curate. You know, some clients dress up more. Right. Perhaps that means something, perhaps it doesn't. And all of that has just been just a just obliterated. Yeah. The question for us at the moment, it, as this, as the playing field has been leveled in, I suppose there's two competing tensions, two competing forces. On one hand, there is a chance for us to experience a shared, just human connection of, you know, to use a, a word from existential literature, of our thrownness. We are just thrown into this giant pile of shit and we're all in it. And, you know, we are just two human beings. And for this moment, we are just going to try and do something therapeutic, whatever the hell that means. And maybe that's just witnessing. Maybe that's trying to find one another. Maybe that's laughing. Maybe that's both of us being freaked out. You know, and that's incredible. What an amazing door for it to open for us. On the other hand, therapy is a mental health service, Mm -hmm. you know, especially in private practice. It is something people pay for. It is something that there is an expectation of like, well, this, you know, he, she, they, well, they must have some idea of what they're doing. I think that's what Cara Maroda talked about in our last episode was that we we are professionals. We have a responsibility to due diligence, to to be trained. You know, the, the, asymmet- the asymmetrical part is that we have the brain of a therapist and our clients have their own brain that is unique and equally able to offer different things, but they're coming to us for a reason. Yeah. And, you know, we have to figure out as much when the boundaries shift and it seems more equal playing field We're we're all anxious. We're all in our homes. We're all, you know, waiting to see what happens. There's, there's something that requires an adjustment for us to be able to see, figure out what it is that we offer still. Yeah, and and maybe maybe the adjustment as well is you know if 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 one was going to be really critical, maybe all the artifice has sort of been stripped away. Maybe the I think I don't know why I refer it to it this way, but like the doctorliness, mm-hmm. you know, the deta- the detachment, sort of the, the the authority. I don't know the expertise as much as we can shout from the rooftops. I'm not an expert. Part of this is coming to terms with the fact that it really isn't there now, and what you're left with you know, is really nothing but the relationship in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know how, I don't know how you found working in the last few weeks for, you know, the, the, the timeline where we're at in Britain about three weeks ago, Britain was taking a, uh, the approach, not that dissimilar to the U S of sort of like, Oh, nothing to see here. This will be fine. It's, you know, no big deal. Yeah. Three weeks ago, they were like, this is a big deal. Really limit what you do. Two weeks ago, it was stay in your homes. Yeah. Which one assumes, 
you know, uh, will continue probably for another two months. I've seen a transition in those, in the sessions, uh, as for me, as the work has gone on. And a lot of clients have just said, I don't want to have video sessions. Let's just wait till this thing blows over. In part, probably in the hopes that this will be a few weeks and it will be all we are over. But the ones who have who have stayed, I mean, this, the the shape of the sessions, and I'm not sure how you've experienced this, is it, it's felt rhythmically very different. It's it's not so much the momentum of are we chasing this thing, are we pursuing this part or this relationship. It's something about the comfort of, you know, can we just both show up at the time that we say we're going to show up? Mm-hmm. You know, sort of like to the absolute core essential of the thing. Can we just look at each other and say something and attempt? And I, there was a part of me when this all began that really sort of rejected that. And I'm still struggling at the moment mm-hmm. as to the the place of psychotherapy in this present moment. And I would, what I would give to talk to someone who would have, someone from the Frankfurt School or, you know, someone who would have been practicing, you know, Klein or Winnicott, someone who would have been practicing through the war, mm-hmm. is I don't know how much psychotherapy you can do in a global crisis. I don't know how much. I think what you can do is you can attempt to have a therapeutic relationship and a therapeutic act, but... I I am struggling, and in, in some ways, I've taken great comfort as the weeks have gone on in seeing my clients, in seeing them work to to reach me in the ways they can. Yeah, and it's helped me to reach them. In other ways, I'm sort of like I I don't know if now is the time to talk this out. My my understanding is that world events and current current events weren't part of part of it back then. What do you, what do you, what do you mean? Well, the psychoanalysis didn't really have a lot of space for bringing in politics and current events into, you know, that's not what Freud was interested in talking with his clients about. Yeah. You know, I know that it must have continued in the, some of the biggest crises of the 20th century. I just don't think it, you know, I just, it didn't look like what it looks like now. I mean, that's the beauty of psychoanalysis is that, you know, it sort of says fuck it to any external events. It's it's because right. it, it's it's a model which has edges and contours, cores and corners, and you know it's applicable now as it will be applicable tomorrow if you're a psychoanalyst. Yeah, and you know, and maybe that is because it was being developed in a time of even greater crisis than we're in now, right? I mean, it was you know the early 20th century was uh, an incredibly volatile era. I don't know. Maybe that's what they needed for the practice to survive. And maybe it is kind of what you said, like the fact that they were all so isolated that we just need someone to agree that we'll be there at the same time with each other. The most important factor is not modality. It is just two human beings in relationship. And in some ways we've, again, we've sort of gotten to this place where that's literally all we can sort of offer one another, you know? Yeah. And I, and I, and I do take some comfort in that. I suppose the the challenge I have at the moment, and maybe this is more coming from me than from my clients, because I ask my clients, you know, much like I would in a normal session, like, is this working? Is this what you need? Mm-hmm. Are we moving forward? Are we helping you to grow? Or are we, you know, is this therapeutic? Yeah. And they all say that, you know, they say the same thing. But I suppose something I'm struggling with, and maybe this is my just my individual struggle coming into the work, is, you know, Sartre makes a 
a distinction between the reflective and unreflective self. And it's a pretty simple distinction. You know, when we are in a reflective, when we're in an unreflective space, we are unaware of I. We're unaware of what's called the transcendental I, as this this entity Mm -hmm. of us, me, I, Mason, Jack. Mm Mm-hmm. To be unreflective is to sort of be liberated from the demands on us. And this is a very Nietzschean principle as well, my my boyfriend, Friedrich. Um, (laughs) You know, this idea of being lost in an act. A a reflective space is when we are are conscious of I. We're conscious of sort of me. And this is something that I think is applicable to our, our practice in general. But certainly in the last three weeks, I have gone through, I think as a lot of people have, Moments of real terror, you know, moments of real fear. And some of that's, you know, at first it's like, oh, my God, is society going to collapse? You're like, well, in a very British way, well, no, it's not. Uh, we'll be inconvenienced. But, you know, we're not going to go Cormac McCarthy just yet. <laughs> um, going through moments of health anxiety, going through moments, mm-hmm. which is not something that has, I have experienced in my life in 20 years. And thank God my my long-suffering wife is a doctor and very patient and is utterly steadfast mm-hmm. and is, you know, desperately Northern, as in Northern British, in her resolve to just not complain about anything. Yeah. She has fielded every, every anxiety I've had, which is not a place I've found myself. As the weeks have gone on, where I have been in the best space where I have been not only in a place to work effectively with clients, to spend time with my daughter, because obviously the schools mm-hmm. are closed, so any moment I'm not with clients, I am on childcare duties. Where I have found myself the most at ease is when I have been in an unreflective space, where I've just been doing something, where I've been lost in an action. Now, for me, like, you know, that's lifting the weights I have or taking bike rides for an hour if I can mm-hmm. or, you know, playing, you know, playing with the kid or outside, you know, enjoying the sunshine. Thank God Britain has been like, you know, the tropics for the last two weeks, which has made all this easier. There's something about those moments when I have been lost in action that I have felt not only at ease, but I've... I've had moments of really loving my life and loving the people around me and being generous in terms of I know what matters to me, what holds meaning to me, and why I'm here. Mm-hmm. The moments when yeah. the moments when I am in a reflective space, when I start to process, when I start to churn, when I start to think and really think about me, are the moments that I become beholden to forces which I don't think are very healthy. Now I don't want to put I don't want to put that on my clients or to put that on everyone, but I wonder if now this is the tension I'm having, and I wonder if other people have it as practitioners. I wonder if now is not a time to talk this out, but a time to do to literally do anything, like you know, do some push-ups, go for a bike ride, make <laughs> a sandwich, watch some Netflix, buy some stuff. I wonder if after this, when we come to a moment post-crisis, if there is the time to dive as deep as we can into what was this. Because I think, because a mm-hmm. lot of people are asking huge questions about themselves, about their relationships, about, right. you know, because they're locked in, they're now, the, all of the, not only the artifice of us has been removed, but the artifice of their life, their partnerships, their whatever has been laid before them. Like, 
what am I doing? Who am I doing with it with? Why am I doing it? And do I enjoy this? Certainly, I agree with a lot of what you're saying. I my my list of house projects for the summer is like almost done now. Boom. And so I, I certainly think it's part of but you know, there's a lot of people who aren't wired to do. Yeah. What I've been hearing from them is asking for some degree of accountability to that. Like we were saying, I, I you know, I, I think our job has to shift with the times. I, you know, certainly we can't process what isn't over completely, but there is the fact that information is changing so rapidly that I do think people need someone to like process that with. What does it pro- pro- process the just the uncertainty of it all? Yeah, and like how quickly we are learning new things every day. A batch of articles came out a few weeks ago or a week ago or so. I mean, time time is a flat circle right now. But, uh, <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, there is a whole bunch of articles that came out last week that said that hospitalizations for young people in America is higher than the rest of the world. Okay, well, suddenly there's a new anxiety in my sessions to, to process, sure, right? Sure, sure. And that was the topic for at least a week. You know, we can't process it completely because it's not over, but I do think we can process it together. Um, But some of the times that looks like me and my clients just saying, fuck, man, I don't know. (laughs) I mean, absolutely. You know, and, and I think that in itself, who, who could say that's not a therapeutic act? Slavoj Žižek has a, a book entitled The Courage of Hopelessness, and he comes from a psychoanalytic background. How do you think he's doing at not touching his face during all of this? <laughs> I would imagine he is probably every five minutes asking his wife if he has a fever like the rest of us. <laughs> uh, but like, a, you know, a big, especially when you're talking about relationships or people who are mired in those unconscious patterns of of the past i mean but there is a courage of in hopelessness of going okay i'm gonna give up the fantasy that this magic thing will work all of a sudden whether it's a behavior an attitude you know part of it is to see it and within a safe space go safe space excuse me go oh fuck this isn't really paying off maybe i can i can make an active choice to pursue something else but you know not only am I having to live my own life like by those ex, I'm I'm being hit with that existential hammer like everyone else. But also, is now a time to fucking give up hope? Like fuck no, man. We need as much hope as we can get. Yeah, I agree. You know, like we need, you know, not false hope, not conspiracy, not fantasy, but we need that idea that one day there will be an end, and that the world that comes after that will be worth living. Like, fuck me, I'm not giving that up anytime soon. I still think this will be over by the end of April. Uh... (laughs) (laughs) See? Hope. This has been Between Us. I'm your host, John Cotton. Our podcast is produced by myself and Mason Neely, who also composed our music. This is a one-off episode, so thanks for listening and hang in there with us for the rest of the season. We are working on it. Find us on social media. We have an Instagram, we have a Twitter account, and a Facebook account. 
those are good ways to keep track of what we're up to. And until next time, take care.